Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Maybe we can read this responsively. You can read verse 2, and I'll read verse 3, and on we go. Let's read verse 2 together. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Together, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This morning we're continuing to look at the words of Jesus to uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, in which Jesus says these words, which we read the week before last. Verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As we shared before by way of just brief recap, what we have a picture of here as we experienced here this morning is that Jesus is in the midst of his church. Jesus is walking among the believers in, 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 the, in the churches in that day as he does today, and he's there to, to trim their light. He's there to care for them, to tend to the light that they have in their midst. And, and we, we, we underline the fact that what it speaks to is the fact that Jesus is the source and the sustainer of that light, that Jesus is the heartbeat of the church. And I know that we acknowledge that, but it really is something we've got to lay hold of as believers and understand that there is no church outside of Jesus. Jesus really is the heartbeat of the church. Church is all about him. And Jesus said to this church in Ephesus, which by this time is probably some 55, 60 years old, he says in verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And what the lampstand, I believe, speaks to, it speaks to the purpose of why the church is raised up in the first place. Jesus says that that is at risk of being removed. And I think what he wants us to understand is that any church in any city can continue as an institution. But if the light is not shining, if it's not about Jesus, if he's not the heartbeat of that church, then that church will be an institution that has little or no influence. And the same goes to us as individual believers in our own communities. Uh, there's nothing worse, well, there probably is, but I tend to be given to exaggeration. There's nothing worse than during a power outage when you rummage through your drawer looking for what? A flashlight. And you find the flashlight, and for a fleeting moment you have hope until you realize there's no batteries in the flashlight or you realize the batteries are dead, or maybe you go off to the shed and you try to find a lamp, you know, a, a kerosene lamp or propane lamp, and again, you got the lamp, but there's no resource there to actually make the thing work. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about, is that you can have an actual light source at your disposal, but if you don't have a power source, then it's just as well that thing not be there. It doesn't really serve any purpose. It's there, but it's just decoration. 
So Jesus warns that your light, he says, will be gone unless you repent. And I want us to understand that though repentance certainly can involve tears, it can revolve regret for anything that we've done in the past, that the essence of repentance is not just about bawling. It's not just about, you know, sometimes even crocodile tears. The real evidence of repentance is that there has been a realignment of the way that you think. And you realign the way you think to understanding the way God says that things work. And the reason God wants us to repent, the reason why he wants us to think the right way is because he wants to reshape our lives in a way that they actually become established. They're actually about something. They actually have a sense of, of substance to them, and they're actually beginning to move in what Jesus has for them. And the repentance that what Jesus is calling the believers to, he says in Ephesus, is in two particular areas. And we dealt with the one two weeks ago, which we called first love. First love. Now, again, I want to remind us that Jesus' words to the believers here in Ephesus are not words of condemnation. They're words we said of commendation. And again, Jesus said eight different things that he applauded them for. He said, guys, this, this is great. And we looked at three of those things. And one of those things was, he said, that you are tenacious in your faith. In other words, he said to the church, listen, what I'm so proud of you about is you are determined you are not going to let the devil kick you around. You are going to give yourself to those things that matter most, and you're going to be strong in those things. In fact, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Paul had written to the Ephesian church uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, and in chapter 6 he talks about spiritual warfare. Why? Because he understood these people were engaged in that. They were involved in that. They were people who understood who they were. He also said they contended for the truth. They were quick to identify error. They were quick to flush out from their midst any teaching that was not scripturally, uh, was not foundational scripturally. And he's not talking about some kind of sectarianism. You know, you go on YouTube, and sometimes it grieves my heart, but you go on YouTube, and maybe there's a speaker you enjoy, a teacher that you enjoy, whatever it might be, and you'll always find in that right column other video clips of people who are against them. You notice that? Why all of a sudden they're evil and they're false teachers and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and really what it does, I don't care what that person's name is in the right column. I don't care how big their church is. i got to confess, to me, that kind of attitude just makes them irrelevant. I'm not saying that I would never listen to them or I judge them, but there's just the sectarianism in the body. Friends, we can disagree on different things. We can disagree on different flavors, sometimes different interpretations. We don't have to attack each other, and that's not what Jesus was saying to the church of Ephesus. He wasn't saying you're sectarian and you stand up for your denomination. No, no, no. He was saying you can recognize when there's true diabolical false teaching. You can recognize that. The bell goes off, and you can identify it, and you keep that away from you. And then he says they travailed for the faith. And I love that because one of the qualities of them is he says you're willing to endure Whatever it is you need to endure in order for the light of Christ to shine through you brightly. And if that's difficulty, if that's going, experiencing lack, if that's persecution, whatever it may be, he says, I'm so proud of you because you stick to that because you know that I'm using it to shape you and form you and you're being a wonderful witness. So having said all of that, then we hear kind of a slight change of tone as Jesus says to them, but I have this against you. And we, we explained how, at least in my interpretation, that when Jesus says, I have this against you, he's not saying, I am against you. Do you see the distinction? He's not saying, I've got a bone to pick with you. I'm really upset with you, and until you get this right, don't even talk to me. That's not what he's saying. 
But he's, he's using the expression that literally kind of means, I'm, I'm just pressing this against you. Uh, here's all the wonderful things I commend you for. I congratulate you. I'm wonderful and pleased with you. But listen, because I love you, there's also a couple of things that I just want to bring to your attention. And how many have experienced that? You walk with the Lord, and just once in a while, you just kind of feel impressing against you. You just kind of feel the squeeze, like, okay, Lord, I, you got my attention. Yeah, okay, I know I need to give attention to that thing. And that's what the Lord was bringing against them. He's moving up close to them, and he's saying, I need you to pay attention to this thing, not to crush you, but I need to correct you in this. And then Jesus said what the issue was. He said, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've left your first love. And we mentioned that really the, the purest, the essence of, of, of first love is really Jesus himself. He is first love. You know, he's the first begotten of the Father. He's the first from, risen from the dead. He, he's first love. He's the first of everything. He's the author and origin of that. And in fact, the scripture says, John says that the only reason that we love him is why? Because he first loved us. He is the source of love. That's where we draw it from. And one of the really most telling evidences of our love for Jesus has to do with just the immediacy of our response to him. The immediacy of, of our willingness to, to, just, you know, to, to just treasure his closeness. And, and when he moves in our lives, when he's speaking to us, there's that immediacy of response. Uh, we often say here, for example, that the evidence of spiritual maturity has little to do with how long you've been in the church. It has everything to do with how long it takes you to obey the Lord when he speaks to you. That's the evidence of maturity. It's like you're, you know, us as parents. And the kids say, hey, can I borrow the keys? Well, you don't give them the, you might, yeah, you have the keys, you just can't have the car. You, know, you might, you know, uh, let them have the car. Why? Because they've demonstrated maturity. It's not just because, oh, now I'm whatever it is, 16, 18, legally you have to give me the keys. No, 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 it's my car. But as you demonstrate maturity, as you demonstrate obedience, uh, then you're able to move into, the, into these things as well. And so the Lord is the same way. He wants us to understand that that idea of first love really is about that immediacy of our response to his lordship. Uh, it wasn't long, as I mentioned last time, that you know, when I was dating Vanessa, I came to a point very quickly saying, this is the woman I'm going to marry. And, and my heart began to change, my priorities and so on. So you find that, right? You meet the person you love, but what happens? You, know, you want to be with them. You want to do the things that they want to do. You, know, you want to go the places they go. You want to watch the, the chick flicks that they watch, you know, whatever it might be, or vice versa. Um, you know, you want to do those things. And, and, and when something happens to the first person that you want to tell, even though you love your parents, there's just this shift, you know, and all of a sudden now it's just, that's the person that you want to talk to. You know, I, 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 I shouldn't say this. I got to say this. It's funny. Um, Angela is just the downside of being part of the family. But, um, you know, uh, Alex demonstrated this amazing feat of trust yesterday, and he let Angela cut his hair. And I, and I said, you know, you either trust this woman implicitly or this is a token of female domination or something. I don't, I don't know what it is. But, you know, what an act of trust. And you see that shift. And as parents, you're so happy for that. I mean, you always want your kids to come to you and talk to you. When you see that adult shift of a love they have for somebody, they're the first person they talk to. They have, they're the first person they want to get the opinion on something, and it's no longer how you think they look, you know? In fact, we just say now, when Alex asks our opinion, we just say, what, is that, what does Angela think? Because at, at the end of the day, that's, that's what's going to matter, and he says, yeah, you're right, and she's, she's cool with it, even if we're not. So that's just, that's just that shift 
in the relationship. And, and when Jesus says that you've left your first love, he doesn't mean, listen, people, there's this whole list of things you used to do for me that you don't do anymore. He's not talking about that. I believe what he's saying is, listen, what I, what I say to you, it just doesn't seem to matter as much as it used to. When I talk to you, when I, when I speak to you, when I know that I'm clearly speaking to you, you've left the simplicity of turning to me first. You've left the simplicity of believing me when the heat is on rather than going to all these other places to try to find an answer. So first love has to do with where you turn first. Where do you turn first? And I want you to ask yourself this morning that question. Where do you turn first? Where do you turn when you need direction in your life? Where do you turn when you need financial assistance, when there's sickness in your body, where there's stress? Where do you turn first? It's really about worship. That's, that's what it is. And, and one of the ways that you know that you not only love your spouse, but that you are actually still in love with your spouse, I've found, it's how you talk about them. You ever been in a, in a group or in a conversation and somebody just kind of begins to speak negatively about their spouse and you just start feeling uncomfortable? Uh, you know, you just, you kind of want to try to shift the conversation, and sometimes you do. But when you're in love with that person, let's say your spouse, then you look for opportunities to be able to talk about them. You understand what I'm saying? Come on, guys. Yes. Okay, okay. this is your chance. But you do look for those opportunities because you genuinely think a lot about them. That doesn't mean, and I'm the worst for this, but it doesn't mean that you don't joke and you don't tease. But you never seriously begin a conversation about them with a moan or a sigh, you know, or this litany of just negative words. You actually like to talk about good things and, and positive things about them. Um, I like to talk about Vanessa. Vanessa doesn't like me to talk about her when I'm on the platform, so I'll respect that. But I enjoy talking about my wife. If the conversation comes up, I, I love to talk about what a wonderful woman she is. Do you remember when you're, maybe when you were dating or maybe even when you were kids, you know, you met someone, you're really head over heels, and, and you'd find yourself writing their name down, you know, with you, like, you know, Paul and Vanessa, true love always, or the heart. Anybody ever do that? Yeah? Yeah. Well, I caught myself the other day in the office, and I, I, I do this quite often, I don't really think about it. If I have a lull, you know, I'm kind of you know, studying, or there's a law kind of thing, I'm alone with my thoughts. Well, oftentimes my thoughts will go to where my wife, and I'll find myself just writing her name. Isn't that corny? Just writing her name, and as I'm writing her name, I'm just, I'm getting brownie points, you want to believe it. I'm just, I'm, you don't even know if this is true, but I'm working this for all it's worth. But, but I'll do that. I'll just, I'll just find myself writing her name, and what I'm doing is, I'm just kind of focusing on her, and as you're writing the name, you say, I'm just thankful for that person. I love that person any case, I believe that's what the Lord is talking about with first love. And I really believe that one of the ways that we know as believers that we're drifting from that first love for Jesus is that our worship of him, you know, it just becomes habitual. Or, or maybe it becomes a burden. Or we find ourselves not really looking anymore for opportunities to talk about him like we used to. He used to be you know, the first one that came to our mind or around the water cooler. You're looking for an opportunity to insert the name of Jesus and talk about him because he was just real to you. He was precious to you and you were in love with him. In fact, if there's one thing we recognize here at Glad Toddings, it's that we really have no life outside of worship. As a congregation, as individuals, if that worship 
if that talking, uh, giving worth, ascribing worth to Jesus in our lives is not part of our lives, then we really don't have that spiritual life. Now, there's an interesting thing Jesus goes on to say for our purposes this morning in verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. So we have first love and first works. And I believe all that first works are are the works that flow out of our first love. But, but Jesus says they're a particular quality of works. They're not just things that we do to create something. It's works that we do that flow out of our love for the Lord. Now, that's a very subtle thing. We can kind of miss that because what we tend to do, and this can happen in any marriage relationship, if we allow it to become stale or predictable, we may love the person, but there's a lot of ways that we kind of go through the motions, fill the days, fill the weeks, and, and you, you have the marriage contract, but you can kind of be drifting in that sense in a relationship. And in our walk with the Lord, it can be the same thing. We can move from works or, or actions that just flow out of the sensitivity of being in love with him and just being available to him and partnering with him in what he's doing, we can slip out of that and we can settle for like a Christian lifestyle where we do good things and it's not that we you know, want to disobey the Lord or not be used by the Lord, but we're not, we're not enjoying just the ebb and flow of a loving relationship where I'm conscious of his presence in my life, where I'm worshiping him through the day and I'm just available. And when the Lord speaks, because he is Lord, because I love him, my response is, yes, Lord. Even if I'm not comfortable, Lord, I'll bring you up in this conversation, or I'll meet that need that came across my path, or I'll, or I'll offer to pray with somebody and trust you to do something. Whatever it may be, just those first works are the things that we do where it's not just a Christian lifestyle, it's actually the life of Christ flowing through us. Do you see the distinction? And one is full of joy, one is full of, of, of fruitfulness and freshness, and the other one sometimes can kind of be uh, dutiful, and it can also miss a lot of God moments, a lot of God-ordained things that he wants to do through us. And that probably is no more true than of those who you might consider professional clergy. You know, you can go through week after week doing ministry, keeping ministry going, doing the things that you're supposed to do as pastors, and, and you know, there's enough on the calendar to keep everybody busy through the course of the week, and you can just miss the beauty and simplicity of just the Lord touching lives through you just day by day as you're just open and responsive, whether it's in the office or the grocery store or on the street, wherever it may be. So it's one of the, those hazards of the job sometimes. But Jesus commends these uh, Ephesian believers for just the determination in walking with him. And then he essentially says, let's get back to the simplicity of first love. Because when you do, first works are just going to spring out of that. So Jesus calls them to return to simplicity. But then there's another very powerful thing here. He goes on to give an additional word of commendation. He says this in verse 6. Yet this you have. Again, a positive thing. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now notice Jesus didn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. He said, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans, or what you might call Nicolaitanism. I don't know if there's such a word, but he says, I don't like this Nicolaitanism. And, and he commends the church in Ephesus because he says, I'm so proud of you that you've kept that at bay. You've kept that oath from your midst. 
But he goes on to say later, I think it's around verse 15 or so, he's, ta he's talking to the church in Pergamos, and Jesus says, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. So there's this thing called Nicolaitanism, you might say. It's, it's existing in one church. Jesus says, stop it, I hate it, repent. And to the Ephesians, he says, you know what it is, and you've rejected it, and I applaud you for that. So that begs the question, who were the Nicolaitans? What is Nicolaitanism? The word Nicolaitan, and we've touched on this uh, in years, in, in past times over the years, uh, the word Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words, nikos and laos. Nikos is a Greek word that simply means to conquer or to dominate. Laos simply means people. And so the idea of Nicolaitans was that there were conquerors or people in the body who were dominating other people in the name of leadership, rather than leading in the way they were called to lead, and for the purpose they were called to lead, they kind of began to lord over the people, using their influence, using their position, using their power. We don't use the word laity here at Glad Tidings. In fact, the only time you'll hear me say the word laity is to say I don't use the word laity. We don't use the word laity here. I don't believe it's scriptural. I'm not, I don't have a heart attack if anybody uses it. Sometimes folks don't give it a whole lot of thought. But to understand the idea of laity, there's another word you need to understand, and that is the word clergy. And that's essentially what is the heart, at the heart of Nicolaitanism. It's the creation of two classes in the body of Christ. Jesus says, I hate that. There is no class in the body of Christ. You say, we know, Pastor, we know you. There is no class in the body of Christ. He did not come to create classes. He destroyed the classes. He's created leadership, but leadership is given a very specific purpose, and it's not what sometimes people think when it comes to this artificial division between clergy and laity that the Lord never intended. In fact, when Jesus was with the disciples, he said this in Luke 22. They're always fighting as they were over position, and Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. You see, we've got to understand that the culture, the structure of the kingdom of Christ is, is it's antithetical. It's the opposite to what is the culture, the, the, the kingdom of our culture in that the evidence of a person's maturity in Christ has little to do with their position. It has a lot to do with their posture. It has to do with a heart that is ready to serve. It has to do with understanding that if you have a platform, the purpose of your platform is to elevate those around you, to bring them up. That's why in the spirit of our culture, what happens to celebrities? We see them rise up, crash and burn, rise up, crash and burn. But the odd time, and most times as people who know Christ, you see them use their platform for good purposes, to serve, to help, to elevate people around them. That's what Jesus modeled. And yet the reality is because we live in this fallen culture, there's this part of fallenness within all of us that does seek position. We seek recognition. We try to find affirmation somehow in, in the titles we have or in the position that we hold or, or the things that we possess, whatever it may be. And in fact, sometimes it's even at the expense or the disadvantage of somebody else. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have myself. It can be a very subtle thing. And sometimes we don't even realize it's going on. 
but we can almost allow a season that we're in where maybe we feel close to the Lord or God has used us in a particular way or God has blessed us in some kind of way. We just, we're, so, you know, we're, we're in a good place. And we can begin to think somehow that we're better than somebody else, that we're better than the other person, that we're somehow either more loved by God or somehow we're more, we're more you know, spiritual than the other person. And yet Jesus said this, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. When I read that scripture, I don't find a trace of pride. I don't find a hint of jealousy or greed on Jesus' part. I don't see Jesus operating in all the things that he operated, knowing God as he did, and using that somehow to be condescending to those around him. Jesus essentially says, everything I am, everything I have, I am using it to bring you up to where I am, to elevate you. In fact, what does Hebrews say? Jesus said, I'm not ashamed with all of your warts, with all of your faults, with all of your mistakes, and all the things I know you're going to do, and how many times you're going to blow it, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and my sisters. That's the heart of Jesus that he wants us to model as well. So by the end of the first century, there had crept into the church this mindset that was not just giving leadership to people, but was lording over people. And Jesus says, I hate that. And he commends the Ephesians for hating it too. In fact, there's a scripture in Peter's in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes these words. I'm just condensing, but in verses 1 through 5, if you want to read them yourself, he said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That it's really easy to miss that, but as I read that, I realized Peter didn't say to the elders as an apostle, as one who walked with Jesus, who preached on the day of Pentecost and saw thousands saved. Peter condescends and doesn't even use the title apostle. He says, to the elders, I'm saying, as an elder myself. Yes, God has given me an office to fulfill, but I want you to understand that in the kingdom, we all walk on the same level. We all trust in the same Lord. There's things that he wants all of us to do and to do together. And whatever he does in my life, I just count it as grace. However high he lifts me up, I just see it as a platform to see more people and to lift them as well. That's what this position is all about. It's not about the office that you hold. It's about the spirit in which you operate. And so the practice of the Nicolaitans was rejected by the believers in Ephesus, but it seemed to take root in the church in Pergamos. And Jesus says, he hates it, and the reason he says, I hate this, is because, and I want you to catch this, it limits the possibilities of ministry through the body of Christ. It limits the incredible exponential possibilities of ministry flowing through the people of God. But here's what I want us to catch this morning. When we talk about Nicolaitanism, we're not just talking about those people who were maneuvering themselves into leadership for personal gain. We're also talking about those people who are all too willing to let somebody else take their place. That's why, for example, in our tradition, we don't use the term vicar. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not bashing other church traditions, and I'm not saying if you find a vicar, go up and wag your fingers. not that. I just want us to understand that, that the word vicar shares its origins in the word vicarious. And we know the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ is what? That he took my place on the cross, did what I could never do. That's fine. But you see, I'm not a vicar. 
I'm not a vicar in this church to take your place. There's no vicars in the body of Christ. We are not called in any way to get somebody else off the hook of what Jesus intends to do in their life and what he wants to do through them. And so we need to be careful that it's not just people who manipulate and maneuver for their own personal gain. Nicolaitanism has to do with the average person like you and me who sometimes are happy to let somebody else take our place in ministry. There's a temptation for all of us to sit back and let somebody else just become a go-between between us and Jesus. You know, maybe you've heard somebody say, well, Pastor, I, you know, I just don't really have what it takes, so I'm just going to step back and I'm going to support those who do. And you know, it's wonderful to support people who are doing ministry, but Jesus also says, I want to make something happen out of you too. I want you to experience things flowing through you. So Nicolaitanism is not only when people abuse their position in the church, it's also when someone never steps into where Jesus is called in to serve because they've somehow believed the lie. We'll talk more, more of this in the fall, but they believe the lie that somehow they're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. That's Nicolaitanism. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus loud and clear. He says, listen, I hate that. I hate that. And saints, I want to tell you something. Don't ever let yourself be fooled by the idea that either myself or any of the pastoral staff can somehow take the place of what you are called to be in Jesus. We can't take your place. We can't substitute what you want to do. I was talking to a friend last night and just saying, there's a temptation sometimes when you see people stepping out or the Lord using the ministry to say, hey, you know, will you, will you come? You know, will you do that? And I looked at what my friend said. He said, I just told him, no. The Lord hasn't stirred my heart to do it. Obviously, he stirred your heart. You go do it. You go talk to them. You go to the hospital and pray with them. Whatever the case may be. Why? Because God doesn't want to limit the possibilities of what he can do. And if it's only those in leadership, we are drastically limited of the influence of Christ in our community that he wants us to be as a light in this, in this place in which we live. According to Ephesians chapter 4, it says the pastor has one responsibility, essentially, to raise up ministry in and through the body so that we can repair God's people to do his work. Now, we don't use the word vicar in our congregation, but you know what? I'm not the minister of glad tidings. Who's the minister in glad tidings? We are, right? We are all ministers in this particular church. And I find that when we begin to minister... You know, even something as simple as we did this morning, having prayer circles. You know, I know there's some folks that that's uncomfortable. And if you're uncomfortable, I get you to raise your hand, but you'd be uncomfortable raising your hand. So we wouldn't even know if you were uncomfortable. But I know there's a certain discomfort there. And you know what we tend to do in our culture? We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, so we don't do anything. You notice that? We just don't do anything. I believe what the Lord would say, you're uncomfortable? Good. Good. That means you've got to grow. You've got to grow. Because when we come together, we're called to minister together. We're called to carry one another's burdens. We're called to pray for one another. We're called to be conduits for the Holy Spirit, to minister to one another in whatever way it may be. It may be in a prayer circle. It may be a handshake in the foyer. Whatever the Lord lays upon your heart. But we come expecting to minister because the Holy Spirit is here. He lives within us. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And freedom in the Spirit doesn't just mean that we play fast music. 
Freedom in the Spirit means that the Spirit is moving like a river and freedom is happening in people's lives as we, as we reach out and touch them with the love of Christ and the Lord surprises us in what He does. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not that experienced in ministry. My question is, what are you doing to get experienced? You've got to step out and do something you're not doing now, right? To learn how to do something you haven't done before. You say, well, I might let Jesus down. You know what? That's okay. He's got an incredible amount of patience. The Lord has this wonderful, precious way of just moving through all of us. We're all different personalities, and he will use our differences and our personalities and the circles of influence that we move in just to become his touch. And he will do that in the uniqueness of our personality, but it takes a personality that says, Jesus, I want you to work in me and through me. It doesn't happen when you find yourself saying to somebody, oh, you have a need, let me put you in touch with somebody that can help you. No, you see, Jesus already has put them in touch with someone who can help them. Guess who it is? It's you, right? And that's why you have my permission. You have my permission. If somebody approaches you and says, can you help this person? Say, no, I don't even like them. Lord hasn't told me to. Now, you might say, hey, will you join me? That's fine. But you know, if you feel stirred, why? It's not just because you're suddenly compassionate. You might be a compassionate person. There's a stirring because Jesus is saying, get ready. I'm going to do something here. And there's nervousness, but there's also anticipation. Listen, friends, we need to come to terms with this. We need to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is not looking for perfection before he can minister through you. Yes, he calls to perfection in the sense of maturity and growth, but in the meantime, you know what Jesus loves to do? He just loves to amaze you in what he can do through you. And we could fill a service this morning in just testimonies of people stepping out, being used by the Lord in the simplest of ways, and being amazed. And you might think, well, Lord, I would love to but Lord, I just feel so unworthy. You know, and the Lord uses you, and you're kind of blown away. Lord, that was cool. I don't know how you did it. I, just, I can just think of all the reasons why you shouldn't use me. And I just feel like the Lord says, yeah, I know, but isn't that neat? I mean, isn't that cool what we just did together? Wasn't that fun? And there comes a living faith. There comes this first love and first works that flow out of that love. I've got to be careful I don't say too much, and I'm, I'm wrapping up now, actually, because it's a topic that's kind of close to my heart for different reasons. But friends, I just want to say this morning, it is only first-class spiritual stupidity that ever believes for a moment that if the Lord does a miracle through you, or if the Lord manifests a gift somehow through you, that that means that you have somehow arrived. That is just stupidity. That's not what it means. What it means is he's just moving you another step closer to what he wants you to become in him. You're, you're just growing. You're just stepping out and you're realizing the kingdom is so much more than what we've come to be comfortable with in a liturgical kind of format. It's about being Jesus wherever we are and trusting the Lord can flow through us if we'll just 
be obedient. And that's why, friends, we need to consciously look for opportunities to allow Jesus to show up. That's why it's good when there's a little bit of nervousness. You know what the nervousness means? It means you know you can't pull this off without him. And the Lord just loves to show up. Um, anyways, you know, there's just so many different things that we can do. But it's interesting that when you want to step out, the, the first opposition you'll oftentimes get or the first, you know, uh, reason for not doing is, well, what if this doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? Well, here's the secret we all know. It's not going to happen, number one, if you don't step out. Right? You're not going to get an experience. But even if things don't always go the way you expect them to go, you've just been obedient. And you know, sometimes the Lord will have you step out, walk across the street and talk to your neighbor, walk down the, you know, the hall in the office and talk to that uh, fellow empl employee or, or co-worker. Whatever he prompts you to do, baking cookies for somebody, laying hands on the sick, whatever it may be. And sometimes I believe he knows that it, nothing's going to happen, at least what you thought was going to happen. I had this happen once. I, I, I had to pray for someone. I was absolutely convinced. The Lord was going to touch them. Absolutely convinced. Nothing happened. Didn't feel a thing. Nothing at all. And right away I questioned, Lord, what's up? And it's like I felt the Lord say, I just want to see if you do it. <laughs> so you see, in that particular situation, it was just the Lord training me. Maybe he's got something else for this person. Maybe something changed you know, a week down the road. I don't know. But I thought, hey, that's kind of cool. It's not just about that. It's about, Lord, what you're shaping in me. You got me out of my comfort. You got me to do something I wasn't comfortable doing. Anyways, long story short, the Lord just wants to get us out of our comfort. Next week, you'll uh, get a newsletter. It'll have all the different ministries starting up in the fall and get folks back. We have discipleship and training programs, everything from, from A to Z kind of thing. But the reason that we do all those things, anything that's in your newsletter, is because everything has to do with trying to move people forward. And that's really all ministry is about. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me as we co uh, conclude this morning. But I want us to understand that First Works is really about ministry. And ministry is not about having it all together. Ministry is not about having it all figured out. It's not about everything going the way you expect it to go every single time. Ministry is the simplicity of returning to loving Jesus and remembering that Jesus loves to work through you. I think it's that simple. Let me say that again. Ministry is about returning to the simplicity of loving Jesus and remembering that Jesus loves to work through you. Does that make sense? It's that simple. We make it complicated, but the Lord doesn't. He says, return to your first love. The simplicity is just me and you. Return to first works. Just as you love me, the things that I give you, you just give those things away to others. Because really, friends, following Jesus is not as complicated as we make it. It's about being who he's made us to become and giving away the things he gives us to give away. Does that make sense? This is what I have against you. This is what I want to press against you this morning. Not to condemn you, not to shut you down. I just want to bring your attention to this. And I want to ask as we close with the song this morning, for any of us as we move back into the fall, I hope you've got some rest. I hope you've had some quiet time with the Lord, back on track with your Bible reading, whatever it may be, taking advantage of the summer hours. But as we move back into the fall and what could be the business and the nose to the grind, I just want to encourage us again to pull back intentionally and just do some inventory and say, Lord, is first love in place? Are we okay? Is it cool? I know first love's where it ought to be. 
And Lord, I'm just going to trust you. No religiousness, no Christian lifestyle type thing. I'm just going to begin to walk with you in the simplicity as you lay things on my heart. I just want to do those things. Is that what Jesus said? I just speak what I hear the Father saying. I just do what I see the Father doing. It's just that simple. Jesus wasn't locked into hours, wasn't locked into a checklist. It was just, okay, Father, what are you up to today? What are you up to today? And I really believe the abundant life that Jesus was talking to us about that he promised us. He says, the abundant life I will give you, the devil comes to steal from you. I'll come to give you life in all its fullness. And that life begins, as, as Jesus prayed, Father, is to know you, the one true God, and to know your son whom you have sent. Jesus said, I just want you to know me. Get back to the simplicity of knowing me, of loving me, and then just the beauty and the fruitfulness of just being my hand extended, just doing what you see me doing, just speaking what you hear me saying. Don't worry about anybody else, their measurements. It's just me and you. Just me and you. Just me and you. And you'll just know the joy of just from here to there to there. Wow, that was neat, Lord. That was neat. The Holy Spirit saying, wasn't that cool? Wasn't that fun? Didn't that blow your mind? That's what it's about, isn't it? Good morning. I know it's warm in here. I know you're tired. I only got three hours sleep last night. I feel you. But that's what it's about. That's what it's about. I, I just, Lord, as I move into the fall, Lord, I just gladly swap with you all the duty, all the religiousness, all the administration, all that kind of stuff. Lord, I just want to move into a fall that I can just day by day just have those moments where I can say, that was so cool. That was so neat. Isn't that beautiful? You know what it's like? You step out, right? You talk to somebody, you kind of, you know, whatever, you do something, you know, you obey the Lord, and the Lord does something. It's like, wow, that's life. That's cool. That's, that's great. That's what it's about. And I really believe the Lord will return us to that simplicity. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come. As we close with this song, the word of prayer, feel free to slip out. The Lord bless you. It's so good to see you this morning. Enjoy the remainder of your summer. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know that first love, we may all know the Lord here this morning, but if you don't, I just invite you as we sing this song just to come. Or you just may want to say, Pastor, I just, I just kind of want to step out of the stuff you've been talking about. I just want to kind of come back to that first love, first works. I just want to take a moment and consecrate my heart to the Lord. We invite you to come. Whatever your need may be, sickness in your body, whatever it may be, we have folks that would love to pray with you and meet you here this morning. So, minister team, will you come? And as you do, Pastor Kristen's going to sing this song. We're going to close in prayer. You're free to slip out. But let's just once again allow the Holy Spirit to take his word and just settle that in our heart this morning. Bring us back.